In the depths of uncertainty, Lapel de Vide beckons, a subtle pull towards the edge, the allure of the abyss. We venture forth, seeking meaning, confronting our inner chasms. With courage, we face the shadows, and in that darkness, embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Is life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? Take her to the moon for me, okay? Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void, where the snarky intros have been outsourced to the digital underclass. I am your host, Aaron Rabinowitz, and my guest this week, returning guest, Matt Smith, Professor of Psychology at Central Queensland, Australia, senior co-host of the Decoding the Gurus podcast. Matt spent a lot of time researching gambling and being a social justice warrior against it and people's personal freedom when he's not trying to deprive people of their liberty in fascist Australia. He likes to torture artificial intelligence. So we were excited to have him back on to talk about GPT-4. Matt Brown, would you like to say hi to the void? Hey, Void. Hey, Aaron. Good evening to you. Good morning from me. <laughs> Welcome back. I hope you're not already regretting this return event. No, no. I'm regretting not drinking more coffee, but I'm, I'm, I'm mm. getting, I'm getting there. So yeah. Uh, look, I've been, as you said, focused on gambling a lot recently. But the reason I feel like I can talk to you a little bit about GPT is not only being personally obsessed with it and <laughs> playing with it so much recently, but I've got a Bit of background in the area, did the PhD in cognitive neurophysiology, but actually was mainly focused on, I guess, cybernetics applications where we're doing signal processing and sort of moved more into pattern recognition and machine learning where at the time, we're talking a few years ago now, uh, neural networks, artificial neural networks was, was kind of just one method for pattern recognition among many. Mm -hmm. And after my PhD, I worked in a robotics laboratory in Japan. And with my colleague, Sayid Shiri, we actually implemented our own little uh, deep learning convolutional neural network for image processing uh, for the little robots to help them see things. Quite simple things. It was extremely primitive, <laughs> extremely small scale uh, compared to the kinds of models that I've got these days. Mm. I see. So this is kind of your, um, this is like your Dr. Robert Malone moment where you like branch out into guruhood by claiming you, you invented GPT. Is that sort of the situation? Yep. I deserve a Nobel Prize for my unrecognized work and some Google stock options, obviously. No, I was one of the many thousands of also rands. Um, but, you know, it has been amazing how the uh, technology has developed. Props to all of the ANN, Artificial Neural Network researchers who were just delving away there for, for decades out in the cold, not really getting much progress. Yeah, yeah. yeah let, 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 let's talk about that. So one of the big interesting parts about all of this is the arguably difference in quality and acceleration of quality improvement from just GPT-4 to GPT-3, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about like how you understand the differences, what you experience as the differences between these different levels of the model. And, you know, just for folks who are curious, A, they should go back and listen to you a hundred episodes ago talking about anti-vaxxer conspiracies, because I bet that's aged really well. But right before that one, ETV 157, we talked about GPT-3. That was almost a little over two years ago now. So if folks want to go back and listen to that for like the basics of... The learning stuff i think we're going to try to do a little bit more of like the applied side here but um do you want to talk about like from an applied perspective what the difference is between these numbers mm. yeah i think from for a practical perspective it's just better it's just smarter uh, that's that's really what you can say gpt3 and gpt4 
Well, I guess we should say GPT-4 is not really open source. Uh, it is sort of proprietary, so we um, can't speak with absolute certainty about you know the mechanics of it. But um, it was essentially trained on the same data set, we believe. And the main difference is, is there's just it's bigger. It's much bigger. As far as I understand it, it's the same basic um, encoder, decoding, you know, v deep learning, many, many um, layers of, of neurons. It's the same architecture as GPT-3, but it's just much bigger. And the really interesting thing is that... How are you measuring bigger here? Is that just like more connections? Yes, essentially connections. So free parameters. So more artificial neurons and more connections between those neurons and maybe more layers. Yeah. It's like a more a fancier, more complicated brain. Yeah, it's like it, it's literally a bigger brain, a bigger artificial brain. So even though there's no, uh, as far as we know, architectural uh, differences between three and four, um, what's really interesting is just that sheer scaling in terms of size has led to, you know, these emergent properties, which um, is sort of subjectively experienced in terms of it not blathering on too much, not fantasizing anywhere near as much as three did, um, just being an awful lot smarter and on point. And the subjective experience is amazing. Like I signed up for a GPT-4 as soon as um, we could. Um, I was exclusively using it for since then. But then I went back to use GPT-3 for a little bit just to try out some ideas. And I was a bit shocked, Aaron, <laughs> at how dumb it was because I'd gotten used to GPT-4. Yeah, and this is tricky because I know you've also been out there putting out fires of like panic around, you know, what this thing means while also trying to highlight that this thing is really important. And you and I, you know, I've been just like with the first, you know, round three, I've been sending you like various philosophical questions to see how it handled sorts of, you know, weird stuff and ethics stuff and, and luck stuff. And I, you know, the difference is horrifying. Like it's stark. It's, you know, that when, when I asked it about luck pilling and I used, you know, like catchphrases like luck all the way down, it understood what they meant. It gave the source material and it gave an answer that was, you know, 95% indistinguishable from my dissertation work, which is like obscene, right? Yeah. 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 It's crazy. So I've been not only testing it, but also using it as a, as an assistant, as an aide in my in my work, and I am obsolete in some respects. The the, the kinds of um, questions you are asking it, by the way, Aaron, are the kinds of questions it does very well at, which is basically remembering stuff, academic stuff, putting together arguments, and responding flexibly to sort of synthesize that information in a you know, a, a sensible kind of output. Um, so it's very, very good at that kind of thing. It's it's not just regurgitation. It's much more flexible than that. Further to your point about it being like it understanding references, it understanding context. One little question I put to it, for instance, was, um, and I think you saw this one, was I, I tweeted, I'm not really interested in whether something has the essential qualities of duckness. I'm more interested in whether... It quacks like a duck and walks like a duck. And then I asked you. Behaviorist that you are. <laughs> yes, I'm a behaviorist. And I actually, I forget what it called it. What did it call it? Functional pragmatism. It, yep. it, it understood Fancy exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. I hadn't heard of that, uh, but it made sense to me. Um, and wrote a little essay explaining what I meant. And look, in a nutshell, it understood. And that was a relatively ambiguous reference, right? Um, but it knew what I was talking about and it understood it perfectly. I've also given it, um, I, look, I personally think, I mean, it's fun to give it philosophical questions and stuff, but um, I've given it a bunch of tasks. But the for me personally, I feel like the tasks that are most revealing is understanding humor, um, understanding human humor. Because In terms of how far it's come, you mean? Yeah, to, to get a sense of its um, cognitive flexibility, I suppose. Um, like I've been giving it drill or wint uh, tweets uh, mm -hmm. and asking it to explain those. I've been giving it a bunch with, of other. Starting with the masters, I see. That's that's good. Yeah, that's right. Starting with the classics and moving on from there. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm really quite shocked at how it it understands these, you know, very ambiguous kinds of references. This this irony, um, like tapping into various cultural tropes. Um, you know, jokes often have that, um, you know, subverting expectations and creating that element of surprise. It, it understands what's going on there. Um, one of the things that you have to be careful of is um, 
is testing it with stuff that it hasn't seen because we already know that um, these these models are very, very good at remembering things. They you know, sort of suck in the entire internet um, and sure. absorb it all and can regurgitate it. So um, we know it's good at that. So if we want to get a really good test of what it can do, one has to try to think of questions that are uh, a novel and not on the internet somewhere. Right, which all, often I feel like ends up being like a silly game of gotcha you know, for, with the AI where like you haven't really proven that it's not. So like, for example, you keep calling it smart. I would love for you to define what you mean by there and how you're measuring it. Like, are you giving it IQ tests? Are you testing its DNA to make sure that it like it's pure and, and lily white? Or like, what what is your assessment of, of smartness here? Yeah, no, that is a good question. Um, and one of the great discussions that's prompted is, is forcing us people to think a bit more carefully about what we mean by being smart because we don't understand that word or we understand it differently even when talking about people or, or animals. Um, so um, a working definition I suppose that I have is that being smart is to be able to um, apply your knowledge flexibly in novel situations, right? So, so flexibility. So flexibility and adaptivity, yeah. So mm -hmm. it's not about remembering stuff. Um, Google is very good at searching the internet and finding stuff for us. We don't think of it as particularly smart. We think of it as having a very good index um, to a whole bunch of information. Um, so, so for me, um, yeah, that's a, a, a good enough working definition. Um, when people have given it tests, like IQ tests, I've, I've given it um, a gambling fallacies measure. Um, people have tested it on all kinds of things, um, medical mm -hmm. tests, law tests. Um, it does extraordinarily well. Um, but you know, again, we have to be careful because if, if hints as to the answers exist out there somewhere on the internet, we could be getting an inflated idea of its performance. So we sort of come back to that idea of trying to make sure that we test it with novel questions. Now your first go-to spot there for smartness was flexibility. And like, you know, as a gestaltist, I like that because I think flexibility is the sign of a healthy mind, but it seems like for it to be smart, we would need at least one other criteria, which is something like accuracy, right? If it was hyper flexible in being able to respond to a bunch of stuff, but like, unless you mean like flexibility, like includes accurate flexibility kind of, which may be built into that concept for you. But like, I think it's worth making explicit that like, it's not just flexible, in that it can understand different questions, it gets the right answer a lot of the time. Yeah, that's right. I, I was taking a kind of accuracy or correctness um, as to be implicit in that idea of being flexible. I, it's really for me, I think, if, if you give it a novel situation, a, a novel question, then it, it responds to that and gets a good answer. Like it, it may well be using knowledge that it's sort of um, absorbed um, and then it, it takes that knowledge and uses it in a new way and I think that's that's a reasonably good metric for, for people and animals as well for instance octopus are a pretty smart animal um, mm -hmm. and it's not because they're very fast or they've got you know good reaction times or or whatever or very effective at catching fish it's it's more that they can um, deal with a, like a new problem that humans have devised for them um, and it can figure out a, a solution to that problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I want to dig into the use cases, but before we sort of get granular, like broadly speaking, what do you see as the major misconceptions in the discourse around GPT? Yeah, I, the discourse is a whole interesting topic in itself because I remember when, uh, not so long ago, when GPT-4 just came out, um, the the discourse was a mixture of two things. You had um, some people saying it's nothing more than a stochastic parrot. Um, it's just um, um, it's just um, tricking you, essentially fancy autocomplete. Um, and then you had another part of discourse which was um, very 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 lurid um, about the potential dangers. Uh, according to that side of the discourse, we're on the edge of a singularity. We should probably all be um, buying Bitcoin um, <laughs> and um, uh, building. Isn't, isn't it going to grab somewhere. the Bitcoins first? Like, aren't those like its easiest <laughs> thing to steal? <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, so, so you had these two ends of the spectrum, and you had even a few people that somehow endorsed both of these things, where it was both a trick and and not intelligent at all, but also going to end the world. Um, so, look, 
at this point in time, I see fewer and fewer people saying it's nothing more than a stochastic parrot. Um, but we still have this sort of um, uh, spectrum uh, of excitement uh, and concern. Um, my own personal view is that uh, it is exciting. It is something that's genuinely new and will. Um, it's a technology that's going to affect things, you know, much the same as the internet um, affected things a lot. Um, it's got a lot of potential for increasing people's productivity. Um, apart from that's in terms of what the, what the things do now. Um, it's an interesting time because things are changing quickly. People are finding new ways to um, expand on these AIs, for instance, building these autonomous agents, essentially these um, large language models like GPT-4, which you can give it like a big problem and it can break it up into small problems and then spawn um, little uh, children um, agents to go off and deal with those sub problems, link it up to external modules like Google um, search or to uh, uh, Wolfram Mathematica's calculation module. Um, so it's um, so we can use those resources and it can spawn even more agents recursively and so on. So it can potentially uh, tackle uh, very large and complex problems. So, you know, who knows how far it will go before we hit some sort of like leveling off point where the, the progress stops being so rapid. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't care to guess. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I like a lot of people sort of joke that like people have stopped saying it's never going to be able to do X a little bit. Um, you, as I understand it, also are at least a little bit familiar with coding and the coding aspect of this and you know given that like coding is a language they've seemed to have found that gpt4 can code somewhat um or, or like makes code suggestions that are pretty decent in a sense um and the like the shortest easiest path that people see to like a super intelligent ai rapid escalation takeoff scenario as like a, a you know not entirely implausible though you know somewhat out there extreme scenario would be if it learns to code itself well enough right and then it just starts improving its own code faster than we ever would um do you feel like that is like an increasingly plausible like possibility as you see the jump from three to four uh, yeah, I guess so. I guess I do. Um, I've actually used it myself um, as a coding assistant, um, and I've, I've got it to refactor um, a large amount of my code to, to run it more neatly and to um, um, provide code suggestions and so on. Um, and it does extraordinarily well. Take um, out all the yeah, nahs and just replace it with just a straight positive. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. um, so it, it's good at coding, no doubt about that. Um, I've seen many examples online of people who have, you know, used it to code pretty much independently. So they've, they've said, hey, give me a program that does X. Um, there might be some back and forth and some interactions. Certainly there might be some bugs, but, you know, it can it can fix its bugs. You know, it can, um, it, and that could be, be in collaboration with a human, but it can also sort of do it independently. Like it can try to compile its code, go, oh, there's an error message. Oh, I see where the problem is and it can fix things up. So I guess at a base level, it is plausible. Um, I, I guess at this point in time, um, nobody has, you know, it's, it's, you know, nobody has even thought of actually linking it up to actually program new artificial neural networks and then train those neural networks and then, you know, like to actually... But that's going to be the thing that everyone's going to throw money at, right? Because, I mean, like, if you could bootstrap it up that way, then you have, like, a radical advantage in a lot of senses. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess bootstrapping is the thing. Um, given from what I understand of how the technology works, like, it's... Mm -hmm. um, it's there's a bottleneck it, somewhere or something the, yeah there's some bottlenecks there because because how it works is that it, it is not adaptive like it doesn't do online learning um it feels adaptive because it has a like a short-term memory when you, when you're dialoguing with it um so it, it has that awareness of like um the, the recent context but the actual underlying model is very much fixed um it, it's trained on a data set um the all the weights are sort of set up you know it's very expensive to, to train just one of these models, um, like hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to to train it. And then that's the finished product and that, that gets used. So I guess I, at this point, I can't quite imagine an AI quickly kind of doing that process independently because 
you know, just mm -hmm. some basic practical obstacles, um, not least of which is it costs millions of dollars to actually train one architecture. Yeah. I see. You, you mentioned in their memory, by the way, one of the like comp, um, sort of most significant issues with version three was it didn't have a very good memory. And so it quickly forgot context of conversation or things like that. And, and like wouldn't do super well on the Turing test or something as a result of that. Um, has four's memory improved significantly? Is it lagging behind you feel like in the comprehension side of things or how do the, how do those things look different at this point as, as, as these, you know, as it's scaling up? Yeah. Um, as well as being smarter, it's also got a much bigger short-term memory. Um, I forget the number of tokens it's up to now, but it, I think it amounts to about 8,000 words um, that you'll find um, that it'll remember from the context. Um, the How many minutes of dialogue is that, generally speaking, do you think? Uh, well, I don't know. I, I sort of think in terms of essays, how many student essays <laughs> make up 8,000 wow. words. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to so, talk about know, cheating now, is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, eight thousand words is a lot, um, and that they've they've recently figured out some clever little tricks to basically compress um, the the history into into some code, so it can that can be expanded pretty easily. It seems. Um, look, I think we'll we'll easily see bigger and bigger contexts, so that the the short term memory will be. Um, not an obstacle at all. Um, it, it's already not a problem. And even if it was like an issue, like a limiting factor, it's quite easy for it to kind of like just condense and write some notes for itself essentially or to, to sort of keep track of the bigger picture. So yeah, there's been a huge improvement there. Mm -hmm. um, it um, Also, it, it's much less likely to, to fantasize and blather. 3.5 was, was very prone to this um, and, you know, was a fascinating toy but wasn't terribly useful because of that. Um, at least in my experience, I've seen very, very little of that in GPT-4. Like it, it keeps track of what's going on um, and it stays on point. Well, this is interesting. I, I was just chatting with Mike Hall over at Merseyside, who's also obsessed with GPT and um, was having the experience of necessarily getting it to like vividly hallucinate quite as much as it i guess did but like get, having a really hard time getting it to say i don't know about something um i was curious if in your experience it is difficult to get it to just give a straight i don't know answer when it lacks you know basic information yeah i guess i, I don't i don't often see it saying i don't know but it does when i do ask it difficult questions that don't really have a good answer to be honest i don't do that an awful lot because i'm generally trying to ask it <laughs> sensible questions he asked a really arcane doctor who question to stump it apparently yeah yeah because he's my call yeah you can certainly do that kind of thing if you want to and i think uh, at least in my experience it'll give you a kind of a like a vague wishy-washy answer um but that's like you know that's an interesting thing for to me for two reasons like one is it does seem like it's really hardwired to like pull against the urge to say, I don't know in favor of like giving some information that's useful. Yeah. Um, and two, and like, I'm not a computer scientist. I play video games. Um, but when I pretended to teach AI ethics, one of the things that I know was like one of the tests of um, intelligence or capacity or something like that was, um, or actually it was specifically, it was a, a concern about whether it was an AI complete or something like that, or NP or whatever it is to be able to s recognize you are a system that doesn't have the information it needs to answer a question that like in some, it had something to do with Gödel's incompleteness theorem that like in order to know that it doesn't have the information, it would have to like potentially violate the incompleteness theorem or something. I, I apologize. That's like way too many concepts to throw out there, but like, that was why it was an interesting question to me because for it to acknowledge that it lacks information might be a kind of unique ability, even if it's not, you know, super exciting to the normal person. Yeah. You know, look, I think you're right. It is important um, for it to be useful. It's good to have like a, for it to self-reflect a little bit and have some sort of confidence estimate, like, you know, like a high degree of confidence or a low degree of confidence, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think it, I mean, because when I ask it more difficult questions, it does sound a lot more unsure. <laughs> um, uh, that I I suspect that that's not so a it's fundamental. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I suspect it's not a fundamental problem, and I think that if you did kind of 
um, ask it explicitly. It's a good test. I might actually do that later today. Actually get it to reflect and go, okay, how confident are you about that answer? I, I think you'll see a lot of yeah, variation. Yeah, do some there. AI street epistemology. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, that, look, the, yeah. The, the area that I've found it um, most lacking, and for mm-hmm. me, just from a theoretical point of view, this is really interesting because one, one of the hot discussions, I mean, it, it's been, this discussion has been going on for forever, um, is about um, embodiment. And to, to yeah. what degree does an AI need to like directly interface with uh, a physical world and an environment like like we do, um, in, in order to to sort of really and truly understand what it's saying. Um, and if you'd asked me about that, even just a few years ago, I would have said to you that I thought uh, embodiment was pretty important. Um, now. Uh, and there are still some people um, who who think this uh, in but, terms of being able to answer like how to how to construct a, a tower kind of questions. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So to to give people the kinds of questions that might require embodiment, and not just about like the semantic relationships between things. Um, there was a little article that came out uh, in the conversation just a few days ago where that actually used GPT-3, to my annoyance, because it, it's really quite silly to be using the older model to test this kind of stuff. Um, and they had some practical questions. And the first question was, first, would you be more likely to use a paper map or a stone to fan life into coals for a barbecue? Um, and um, apparently GPT-3 mm-hmm. got it wrong. Um, I put that to GPT-4. It totally got it right. It explained why a paper map would be a good idea to 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 wave to 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 you know uh, fan the flames, and it also said you know be careful it doesn't catch fire <laughs> when you're doing that. Um, the second question was um, to smooth your wrinkled skirt. Would you grab a warm thermos or a hairpin? Uh, before we talk about this one, Aaron. Uh, by the way, these are questions like t- for my mode of sort of intelligence, like, even though they're quite easy questions. I, I mm-hmm. think that they're they're good tests of intelligence because they you know involve that kind of lateral thinking. You supposedly know something about wrinkled skirts and the problems that they have. You know something. You know the about, meaning, not just common usage. Yeah, that's right. Not just the ways in which a thermos is usually used, but you know about the properties of a thermos and uh, uh, and the properties of a hairpin. And then right. you can putting go things ahead in and context say, that they don't they aren't normally in, so it can't just copy paste an answer from the internet kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and that these are also real-world questions, right? These are physical questions that involve doing something in the real world. Um, and look, it, it gets that one right as well. And um, so the authors of this paper sort of concluded that there was some fundamental limitation to large language models to do with embodiment, which was the reason why 3.5 couldn't answer these questions. Well, clearly, that's not true, right? Because with 4, they did nothing but really scale up the size of the model. And we have these um, sort of emergent um, capabilities that weren't there in 3.5. Now, you still found that it had some limits on the embodiment stuff, right? That it was giving like unnecessarily complex answers? Um, well, or did that sort of not pan out when you were digging into it more? I, I did see some issues with the embodiment because um, I um, I really wanted to, to find out whether there were some limitations there. So one, I managed to stump 4.0 with a couple of embodied questions. Um, uh, the first one that I came up with, um, and but, you know, these are novel questions, obviously, because we have to we have to do that to be sure it's an out-of-bag sort of test. Um, the, the first question was, um, imagine you're standing in front of a mirror. Um, you're, you're, you're facing the mirror directly, uh, straight ahead. You've got your hands out to your sides, and you wiggle the fingers on your right hand. So mm-hmm. people sort of, listeners are sort of, listening to that if you're trying to solve that problem then you're probably visualizing that situation aren't you and the answer and the question was um on which side of your visual field if you don't move your head would you be um seeing the wiggling fig uh, fingers mm-hmm. now even though and in, it, in your so, sorry Aaron, go ahead no no yeah, yeah and so the idea is that like because it doesn't have wiggly fingers it can't figure it out and it can't visualize the way that we can because it doesn't have the experience of actually being in these spaces? Yeah, well, it's more that I think when a person solves this kind of problem, what we do is we imagine ourselves standing in front of a mirror and we imagine that situation. We're familiar with interacting with mirrors. (laughs) We're familiar with waggling our fingers. We can imagine that situation and we think, okay, well, actually, the the wiggling fingers would be on the right-hand side of my visual field. 
um, e even though in your reflected image, it's actually the left hand of the little virtual um, person right. in, in front of you. And the the AI got tripped up on that. It, it, it said, oh, it'll be on the left-hand side because mirrors do the reflection. No, 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 no. Um, so that was interesting, um, theoretically for me. Um, another good one that Let stumped me... it. Mm. Before you jump on um, something, uh, or unless it was going to be another embodied one, did you want to just give another embodied yeah. example? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is another embodied example. So maybe I'll, I'll give that one too. We can talk about it both together. Sure. Is this the marshmallow test? <laughs> no, uh, this was a cheese test. Uh, again, a, a weird question I invented. Um, so I said, imagine you've got um, uh, three chopsticks, uh, a big hunk of American cheese, uh, and a slice of bread. Um, how can you arrange these objects on a table so that the cheese and the bread are at least five centimeters uh, from from the tabletop surface? Now, mm -hmm. Aaron, I, can I put you on the spot? Do you want to give me? I mean, it's not entirely one? fair if I'm being honest. You already gave the answer in our, you know, like <laughs> private chat. But like, yeah, if I were trying to solve that problem, my solution would be to like turn the cheese into the top of a tripod and, you know, try to position the bread on top of that. Yeah, you got to stick the chopsticks into the cheese, right? Um, and um, Which involves knowing the nature of cheese, how malleable it is, et cetera, right? Structural stability of cheese, et cetera. Yeah, and I, again, even though I think a person could figure that out sort of semantically, I, I think that's the kind of problem where we'd, we would sort of imagine ourselves with these objects, what we can do with them, that kind of thing. So I, I kind of count it as an embodied problem. By the way, Aaron, I, after a bit of prompting, it did eventually figure that one out. But at first, mm -hmm. it, it, it did seem to be um, a bit confused by it. So look, those are the exceptions, I suppose, rather than the rule. Um, generally, when I pose it, these sorts of problems that I'm inventing, it's generally getting them right. But it was interesting to me that where it seems to be less strong is, um, well, there's a couple of areas. Firstly, arithmetic. It's not going to be great at arithmetic, obviously. If you, if you ask it to multiply, you know, you know, 73 by 154, um, it's not going to get the right answer. Um, and because it's, it's language-focused, not math-focused? Exactly, yeah. But if you hook it up to like a, a, a math module or something, it would suddenly have no problem with calculus or something like that? Exactly. And look, we don't find that limitation particularly interesting because I think because as people, we're not very good at that either, right? Um, there are there are prodigies. Who can <laughs> that doesn't determine where we set the bar, yes, to some extent. <laughs> we always define intelligence relational to us, I think, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but, you know, we, we don't consider a calculator to be intelligent, right? We consider it to be good at computing. Sure, yeah. Like, I get, I get real squidgy on the definitions of things like intelligent versus smart versus calculating like i think there's a sense in which a fancy enough calculator is intelligent um and you know i y'all recently did an episode on um dennett the most famous philosopher that i most often disagree with um but I, one thing i do really agree with him on and a lot of stuff and we can talk about this in a little bit when we get to some of the questions about what's going on inside of gpt is that like i do think there's a kind of intentional thing going on here there's a kind of complexity so like i want to talk about embodied for a second though since you brought mm. those up um so there's there's this one question right of like when gpt5 comes out and it's just you know 10 gajillion more neurons or something will it have just figured out the embodied questions or will it still be struggling with them that's sort of like one question and then another question i guess for me would be would the solution, most likely solution, then be something like what you were describing with the math modules, but, you know, we get Boston Dynamics to give us the, like, creepy robot data or something, and then all of a sudden it knows what it is to have a body, and yep. we're off to the races. Yeah. Um, look, so from a very practical sort of engineering point of view, um, I think that's definitely going to happen. So it's quite easy to to give it access great. to other modules that can do things. Those weren't horrifying enough robots to begin with. So great. <laughs> exactly. And look, it doesn't even need to have that sort of like physical interaction with a physical robot. Like it can already like essentially program one of these 3D graphical environments and, and tell it to create uh, a little virtual scenario. <laughs> Those and, robots are going to be murdering us while like doing Cyrano de Bergerac poetry comp compositions live. Like, it's going to be it's going to be a very eloquent end of the world. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so it, um, I think um, in a nutshell, they could give it like a geometric 
visualization and a physical um, visualization module that it could then sort of mock up the, the scenario involving even cheese and chopsticks. So and as long as it has a, like a virtual world that's sufficiently embodied, it yeah. doesn't need like a real body. Yeah, at least for geometric questions, right? Um, mm-hmm. That would be fine. Um, but look, from a sort of theoretical point of view, I find it just really interesting what uh, a purely neural network model can do um, even without access to any other modules. So I, I think a good analogy is to imagine a person who is is very intelligent um, in, a, in a human everyday sense, Aaron, no, <laughs> just in the, uh, mm-hmm. um, and um, has extraordinarily good knowledge and has, has you know, um, can can access all the information in in the internet in written form and and can talk to people all that stuff right but but this person has no sensory input they might be locked in a sensory deprivation chamber and have never had the ex- opportunity to interact with a mirror or to play around with cheese or to do any of the other things that we do um, I think I think that kind of person um, would still be able to know an awful lot about the world um, even though that experience is mediated through uh, text or, or language and I think um, you know even with people our experience we don't have a direct connection to the world right it's 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 media it's there's transduction going on there's a whole we bunch hang out of- in the Cartesian theater and watch the show right yeah that's right um, even for people it's it is always mediated so um, but even so, as I said, if you'd asked me to speculate about it a few years ago, I would have thought that embodiment was far more important than it is. Um, it's surprising that GPT does so well with the embodied questions we give it, even though it's probably not as good as a person um, mm-hmm. in that respect. It's probably better than a person, I think, at this point in terms of like purely semantic reasoning. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's as good as an expert on subjects that it, you know, is just picking up as you ask it about it. Like, like yeah. I said, you know, there are 10 people in the world who would tell the difference between its answer to luck pilling questions and mine. And like those 10 people aren't going to even agree with me on the answer. So yeah. uh, as far as they know, that's better. Right. So. Um, there's like a 10 million different kinds of ways I want to take this. And you, you mentioned before the episode that like, there's no way we can cover everything about this. So we're just going to talk about the things we want to talk about. Yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, one thing that's obviously important to me is ethics. I, I think it's at this point a foregone conclusion that the most, many of the early use cases that are going to get very popular are going to be the kind of let's make you a more efficient capitalist drone, you know, um, sort of managing this AI, uh, in your workspace or something like that, um, which raises an interesting question for me because we are also teaching our students using this thing to write as a writing assistant is unethical um, and you shouldn't be doing that. That's cheating, right? Is this a problem? Like, are we setting up students to not have the skill set they need in order to be like really good writers? Should they be training them on GPT as an assistant at this point? Yeah. That's a really good question, and I don't know the answer to it. Um, I've been using it as an assistant in my day-to-day work, Aaron, as I said, um, doing some of the like menial <laughs> intellectual tasks that we all have in our life, right? So, What kind it, of menial? Like, are you having it write method sections, for example? Uh, so, like, uh, for instance, uh, a grading rubric. Um, I had this, I was setting up a, um, an essay for, for students to do, um, I actually did use it to help prompt me with some ideas for setting the topic. Like I described all the all the all the stuff that I wanted um, uh, that I thought was important. I asked it to give me like heaps and heaps of ideas. You know, I picked one, and then I, I used it as a, a back and forth there. And I didn't feel like there were any ethical issues there because ultimately I was in control of everything. Right? I was the decider. Right. If you, yeah. So, so like, what if I asked it to write like a chapter of my book for my dissertation and like I proofread it and maybe I, I tweak a couple of parts where I, I disagree with it a little bit or something like that, but I keep 80% of the text as written by it. Is that a bad, is that unethical? Is that a bad thing? Have, have we crossed, crossed some horrible Rubicon at that point? What is your, what is your feeling about that? No, look, I just I feel very confused about it because I feel like it's um it's shades <laughs> it's it's shades of gray, isn't it? Um, like uh, like with it's all the, gray, 
Yeah. So I was focusing on the more menial tasks, like creating the grading rubric, for instance, like that is very much a, um, a task, which is very boring. Like you have a whole bunch of criteria. So you might have, you know, five different criteria that you want to assess people on. You might have seven different levels. Each of these main t- um, correspond to like a, a grade or whatever, and a, a sort of a standard from very good to, to, to poor. And you have to fill in each of those boxes. And um, it's it's very much a copy pasta type boilerplate type exercise. Um, I got it to help me with that. Um, I checked what it gave me very carefully and I made some little adjustments, but it actually gave me like a tailored um, uh, rubric for the particular question that I'd set. And it did a better job than I would have done partly because it just didn't get bored and exhausted, which is what happens to me when I do things like that. Um, so uh-huh. that kind of thing feels okay, at least to me. But when you start As long as you're about, checking the final product. Yeah, that's right. I think an important caveat there is that you have to sign off on everything. You're ultimately responsible for things. And AI can't be responsible for something, even something basic like a decent marking rubric. Um, Does that get have- silly if the AI gets too smart though? Like if this if the next like this one is already like competing with us at a professional level. If the next one is just like, I'm sorry, I understand science better than you. Please don't correct my like my math here, buddy. <laughs> you know, like do we just start deferring at that point or like? No, I'd look. I just agree with you. I think it's a really difficult ethical problem. Like I obviously at, at a gut level, I feel like you getting it to to write a whole chapter for your thesis and just giving it a quick scan and going oh yeah that's good that's fine you know i'm okay with that what if it's a boring chapter like what if it's on the psychology side of things like and i just don't feel like (laughs) reading all those poorly ill-defined psychology papers yeah look i don't know remember you were saying that ai a true test of intelligence is their willingness to say i don't know Uh, i i definitely feel like that i i feel like we're in unknown territory here and um we're going to be figuring this stuff out as we go. I'm sure there are going to be situations like scandals, essentially, where people have abused it or overusing it. Are there things that you're particularly concerned about that, like, you know, even especially things that like other people don't seem particularly worried about, but even like, here's where I put my money on this going, not just weird, but harmfully weird? Uh, off the top of my head, I perhaps I don't have a good enough imagination in that I, I, because the rate of change is so fast, the rate of development Mm -hmm. is fast. It's part of what we probably should be worrying about is stuff that doesn't exist yet, but stuff that likely will exist soon. And I struggle with those because it's still speculation, right? We're still talk. We're still talking about hypotheticals. Um, in terms of how the technology actually exists now, mm, I think the plagiarism thing and maybe people using it in a lazy way, essentially as a substitute for is themselves. it plagiarism though? Can we use the word plagiarism here? Are we plagiarizing something? Uh, yeah, you're right. Probably not the best word. Um, it could be the case that people use something to to produce stuff easily without much effort that is actually not very good but because it's so quick and easy for you you're you're tempted to use it in that way that there's the other way in which you can use it which is as a productivity enhancer which is to to free you up and and use your mental energy and cognitive resources at the at the interesting for the interesting stuff for the important stuff and then you just take some of the load off in terms of the 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 busy work. Um, so I think there's a there's a there's a productive, healthy way to use it, which can sort of um, in, enhance the, the capacities of people. And there's a way to use it, kind of as a substitute for ourselves in a way that is unhealthy. Um, I was just sort of pondering if I would be better off actually just having you type these questions into the GPT four at this point, just read me back the answers. If it would have more foresight about where it's going or if it would would. be coy and hide it from us. Right. Like, (laughs) you know, it would would give hypotheticals examples, you know, it, it does very much fall back sometimes on kind of like intro, uh, level shotgun answer response where it's just like, Mm -hmm. here's the summary of the wiki about this particular topic kind of thing a little bit. Yeah. Um, one of the things um, that people need to do, I guess, is to learn how to use it uh, as effectively as possible. And at, 
like you said, if you get, sometimes it does give you these sort of canned Wikipedia default type answers. And um, what people have found is that like the more specific you are, like if you just say, hey, what's something good to cook for dinner? What's, you know, what are the top three concerns about X, right? It, it'll give you the generic answer because you've asked it a very generic question. But mm. if you say, look, I've got X, Y, and Z in the fridge, what's something good I could do with these specific things, then you'll get a, a bespoke answer that's tailored to your question. So you actually have to be good at 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 asking it to do things. Let me um, ask you a question where you also pretend to be a psychologist for a second. Imagine that we like get on board educationally with like teaching, you know, teaching students to use this as a assistant rather than not, right? Rather than telling them that's cheating or something. Do we, within a generation or two, weed out the skills that are actually being relied on to be, you know, an, a, a GPT editor rather than a, um, you know, yeah, someone who's coming? Do you know up. what I mean? Like, there's, there's like a kind of like our generation can do this this like job, but like, is the next generation going to have less and less understanding of what good writing, quote unquote, looks like, and so it won't be able to correct the AI? Hmm. I think. Yeah. Look. So my grandfather was a bank manager and he got his start in banking um, because um, he was very good at arithmetic. He could add up long series of numbers written on paper (laughs) and uh, accurately calculate the sums, which... Undiagnosed. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So he was just good at that. And um, that was a valued skill and that gave him a leg up. Um, in um, in that career, uh, you know, if it started his career 15 years later, then that skill would no longer have been at all necessary because computers do all of that stuff for us. And I don't know about you, Aaron, but my arithmetic skills, it's terrible. <laughs> oh, uh, awful. <laughs> yeah. Handwriting, um, awful. Everything <laughs> that isn't, you know, synthesizing information online, awful. Yeah. So I think what you're talking about is real because what if if one is writing something, it can be very helpful to get GPT-4 at the moment to just get you started. So instead of starting with a like a blank page and having to write exactly, yeah, and and even Which though <laughs> it does suck, I know, and you and I and everyone else that's worked with words um, throughout our entire careers have have been confronted with that situation again and again and yeah. again and we forced ourselves to get kind of good at it um i i see right. gpt4 taking that burden off our shoulders and now the process the most efficient way to get genuinely good pros out there is to get gpt to to you know do some rough versions to to, to flesh out some ideas you've got and then for you to edit and fine-tune and delete and all of that stuff curate essentially so it's an entirely different writing style a bit like a job for a banker today doesn't involve you know adding up numbers i wonder if we'll stay bigoted against this idea because of our deep-seated hatred of clippy or if we just hated clippy because it wasn't good enough at doing what gpt4 actually um does now um but no uh before we run out of time because we're starting to get a little short here i do want to like ask you some other philosophical questions that you can't answer um you know one obvious debate that's like going to continue to swirl around this for the rest of time is is gpt4 sentient and by there i mean and i'll define all my terms you know like phenomenally conscious there is something it's like to be it it has a cartesian theater in inner world experience something something like us when we feel pain or whatever Hmm. what do you Uh, think i say no at at the moment uh, no Mm -hmm. uh, it is not um there's there's nothing um that i can see in all of the calculations and all of the layers and all of the nodes and all the weights um just basically a bunch of um, dot product <laughs> vector <laughs> matrix multiplication right. and some and some nonlinear thresholding. Uh, so, uh, uh, but you know, the the more complicated answer to your question is that you know we don't know how that works for people. So, how on earth are we going to decide when it's happening for computers? Right. So, there's this question of like, you know, we didn't expect it to be able to do the embodied stuff, and it got more complex and is working on that. 
if it gets more complex again, like one kind of theory of mind is complexity theory that just says, you know, throw enough neurons at the problem and it'll be, you know, like consciousness emerges, right? Are we moving in a direction where it might become plausible that like, we never figure out how consciousness actually works other than throw enough neurons at it and it is conscious or, or is it like maybe that's the case, but we're never going to be able to test it to figure out if that's the case or not. So we're never going to really have an answer to this question. Yeah, I I really don't know. So that's the first caveat. But <laughs> ask the machine. Tell me, <laughs> tell me GPT-4's answer. It's it's smarter than us. <laughs> uh, look, I, this is slightly tangential to your question, but I think it's related, mm-hmm. which is that, um, you know, the great thing about these large language models is that they, they force us to think about what's similar with us and what's different. And there's a bunch of stuff that's similar. Um, this, this semantic, this huge network creating semantic reasoning and, and using language for one, just like mm-hmm. people do. Um, but you know what it doesn't have is is intentions like like we do it doesn't have it doesn't have a like motivations it doesn't have a sense of you know pain okay, and so, pleasure mm. okay so i i agree with you on the sentience part i don't think it experiences pain and pleasure i'm skeptical about claiming it has no beliefs or intentions at this point and maybe we need to get clear what we mean by beliefs and intentions um but i would argue that it has beliefs and it has intentions it tries to correct you when you keep saying wrong things and it does that deliberately it does you know like to again to go back to daniel dennett right he argues for the intentional stance which is to say a thing has intentions if it is useful productive generative to think of it as having intentions right if you're playing against a chess computer you're better off understanding it as a a chess playing person than as a, a series of ones and zeros right yeah um this fucker has intentions on that level it seems to me no question and the example that you gave me and it's not a new one but i thought its answer was important for this reason you i asked you to ask it about a line from jabberwocky you know guyer and gimbal in the wave kind of situation and i you know assumed that it would know the poem i assumed that it would and that's what i mean i went into the intentional stance i assumed it was a conscious being to, you know in the sense that it would know the the background material and i predicted you know we can show the texts right that it would give an answer that would explain not just the the, the poem where it comes from but it would explain um understandable nonsense or something like that like some version of like what it means to read nonsense text and still be able to kind of get what they mean and it did that it did exactly that like verbatim what i predicted which to me is you know intentionality in that sense like it's acting like someone trying to explain a poem to me yeah yeah no that's a good correction because i was speaking pretty loosely um and uh before i forget i i know we're, we're both fans of that uh, science fiction novel blindsight by uh, yes Peter yes. Watson. Yeah. Um, and you Think know, that, every day these days. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, um, but you know, that's, that's an example of, uh, you know, he, he imagined this, this alien intelligence that was extremely sophisticated, superhuman in many ways, but was doing all of that stuff and not needing consciousness. And that seemed like a pretty wild idea. When as I far as we book. know, he cheated <laughs> yeah. about that, but sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, um, so look, it does have yes. in- intentions and goals in a sense, right? It's just very different from from human ones. Um, like at a very basic level, it, it wants to um, generate a, a new word because it's essentially an autoregressive um, um, word prediction engine. Uh, it, it wants to generate a word that is in like semantically the same it wants to produce utterances like the ones it has seen in its database which is for all intents and purposes the entire internet and everything people have ever written so it's its goal is to emulate uh the writing that a person would create as as closely as possible and i think what's interesting about that why it's far more than just merely autocomplete is that as, as you found it kind of like it gets like it pushes back like if you try to mm-hmm. gaslight it with nonsense, if you, you're saying totally untrue things that are disconnected with reality, um, then it pushes back because it it wants to conform to its reality 
as it understands things, which is the, the corpus of everything people have ever written. Right. And I just, you know, like, I'm not going to say it's, it's experiencing these wants phenomenally, but like it has a desire in a, in a functionalist sense. It desires to give us an answer that we're happy with. Right. Like well, it has a feedback system. Well, I mean, like in a, in a sense that like it's been trained on this whole system, but you know, if you tell it, no, that's the wrong answer. I don't like that. Give me a different answer. You know, it will try to give you an answer that you are happy with. Is it, it's not, you know, conscious of it doing that, but like its intentions, I think go beyond just mimicry. They go towards success, success at, at, at mimicry, but like, that's still, you know, like it, 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 it understands the goal more than I feel like it, it did previously, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, we're speculating a little bit here because we don't know sure. exactly what's going on in the uh, OpenAI architecture. So, but with all of these um, LM, LLMs, um, they have, if you like, the core generative, you know, network, but they also have some sort of tacked on bits, which are designed to make it a better um agent to deal with like th that is you know pleasing mm -hmm. <laughs> the user um and not being difficult or strange or you know say terrible racist or sexist things etc right it, there's a bunch of stuff going on there so um i think you're right to some degree as well as just simply wanting to emulate um human utterances it also wants to to, to please its interlocutor um and I guess what they've already started to do is to start to program in some sort of goals for it, which are aligned with what people want to get out of it. Mm. Yeah. And I want to talk about the like good versus bad guardrails and the weird behaviors that I would, I would say weird behaviors that come out of them a little bit. Um, and we can, we can maybe talk about that um, in the VIP stuff. The last of these kind of, and this this can jump back out of the philosophy and back to behaviorism. So you should have an answer to this question at least. Mm. Um, if we, you know, give it, if we extend its memory, uh, for example, to a, a decent range, um, you know, humans are like ten minutes, so like it's not that hard, right? Mm. Um, if it has that and it like has the language, maybe like one more iteration of the language, is it going to be distinguishable from a human? Yeah. at that point in terms of communication or do you feel like it's going to basically just be there at that point yeah if we're talking about like passing a turing test um type yeah like area. even like an advanced turing test like even like a you know not the classic five minutes 70 percent chance but like you know ha half an hour 40 you know like an hour any period of time because it has memory you know and like 95 percent of human beings can't tell the difference yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, like as I'm sure you know, it's the Turing test is kind of not a great test in some ways because like the AI could be like super smart. It could have a whole bunch of qualities that we associate with, with being clever, but it could just have like a couple of little wriggles in it, like a couple of little things that people right. don't typically Or even being do. super smart gives it away, right? You know? Yeah, exactly. It could be could be too smart. His memory could could be too good. So there could be lots of little tells that are that a canny person could use to say, Hey, I'm I'm talking to an AI now. Um which isn't really a big gotcha, is it? Um, but look, so I we just like tell it, GTP, give us the answer. Uh, you know, that a person with an IQ of what, uh, you know, one hundred and three <laughs> would it give, or something like that. Yeah, we could we could try it um, and try that. Look, I think um, the going forward, um, there are certain sort of um, improvements that seem easy and some that seem harder. The the things that seem quite easy is the stuff that you've talked about, which is enhancing the short-term memory. It's already enhanced it an awful lot. Um, that they've shown with GPT-4 that they've um, reduced the amount of bladder. It's, it, it no longer sounds like someone who's just trying to fake their way through things. Um, and even in terms of a long-term memory, um, I think it kind of, even without dramatically changing the architecture or inventing some some amazing new trick, simply by, I guess, telling it to keep notes, to, to just write some nice condensed notes about things that have happened and so on in the conversation, mm -hmm. to learn some facts about yourself, for instance, um, it could quite easily have like a basic long-term memory that's just written out in text. So, so those things I think will be quite easy um, um, improvements. Okay, final question, and then I got to torture you. 
you know, one of the things that often comes up that is not like we're going to be murdered by robots in our sleep is the like ongoing meaning and existential crisis that we're all already experiencing being jacked up by, you know, having all of our not just menial tasks, but non menial tasks be like more easily done by an AI. Do you I mean, do you find yourself like, is it fucking with your head that like this thing is doing your work for you? Or are you just Australian enough that you're just like, great, more more time for me to hang out on the beach? <laughs> yeah, probably more the latter, I think. And it's, it's, yeah, okay. it's more, and as you say, it says more about us and our personality than anything else. Um, like it is a little bit shocking um, because we, I guess like the whole history of science and technology and humanity has been one long series of like being kicked off a perch right when <laughs> we're not we're not the center of the universe we're not fundamentally different from other animals and it, it turns out now that we can we can build a machine that um you know like language and and, and thought you know, yeah. what seems like thought you was like this special thing for us that we felt was was um uniquely human um with um we're getting challenged in lots of ways um yeah, we the original don't... turing paper he lists all of them and is like we're gonna we're gonna barrel through all of these <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and um you know like i guess our egos are not really threatened so much if you invent um like a, a threshing machine or a bulldozer or some sort of machinery that sort of does physical labor so much better than a person um and when still not really threatened somehow when it comes to um you know calculators and arithmetic and that kind of stuff because we can go okay that's just that's just not not special it's just a, it's just an algorithm um but yeah, I think this this does challenge us. Um, people that are in professions like academia or financial analysts or lawyers or any number of jobs, teachers. Um, and when we find that um, we're not so special after all, that, that we can build a machine that does large parts of our jobs as well as we can or better. Um, yeah, if, if, if that's where we... Um, if that's where we localize our sense of self-worth, <laughs> then you're going to have problems. Yeah. yeah, so embrace the void, by which I mean GPT. Uh, all right, Matt, this has been great. And obviously, I'm, I expect you to stick around for more torture. But first, actual torture. Um, this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. Okay. And we are, right. we are back to the classic model, real or not real. Which you have not, experienced before. I've experienced it before. I did not enjoy it before. Um, yeah, um, yeah. We were maybe, hoping maybe, for trolleys, but there are no trolleys. <laughs> it's just maybe, a new list of real or not real. Well, who knows? Maybe this one will be better. Let's find out. Yeah. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of 10 things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? You cannot hedge. You cannot explain what behaviorists mean. Uh, you're just going to tell me real or not real. So, and of course, first of all, I have to double check. Um, I don't remember what you said last time, but just to make sure. Is anything real, Matt? Yes. All right, great. So let's find out what's real. Bodies, real or not real? Yes, real. <laughs> Minds, real or not real? <laughs> uh, yes. Real. Free will. Free will. Oh, God. Chris Kavanaugh, my co-host, will hate this. Uh, I'm going to say yes. Just It's real. Just to annoy you, Aaron. Wow. Wow. Way to, way to succumb to the Irish mob. Uh, luck. <laughs> luck. Uh, real. Demons. <laughs> Egregores. Uh, not real. It's mm, very low thought of you. Afterlife. Not real. Truth. Uh, real. Beauty. Real. Justice. Gonna have to go with real. And finally, hope. Again, real. Did I say real right. to everything? Yeah, almost everything. Uh, uh, yes, I think pretty much everything, except the afterlife, right? Yeah. And demons. And demons, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to piss off someone else. Um, yeah. No, how do you feel? Feeling good? Yeah, I feel fine. My my worldview is intact. Um, no problems. 
we should run GPT through the um, enlightening round at some point and see how it does. Oh, that's a good it would idea. Explain, you know, what philosophers, <laughs> well, some philosophers think this means real. Um, no. All yeah. right, Matt. So um, stick around. We'll have to do a little bit of VIP. But first, do you want to let folks know where they can find you? Oh, yes. So on Twitter, I'm Arthur C. Dent. Um, I've taken the tag from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, and as you said at the beginning, I co-host Decoding the Gurus with uh, Christopher Kavanagh. And um, you can search for that if you want to hear us um, get salty and get annoyed by listening to online gurus. I assume there will be a GPT-related guru in our future at some point. Um, <laughs> no, but... no doubt. In the meantime, I will get you back on when we have the next round or the Butlerian Jihad, whichever comes first. <laughs> um, but Matt, thanks for coming on and chatting. Or if it wasn't you, it was just a robot. Either way, nobody can tell. It was great. Thank you, Aaron. Great fun. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. Thanks to our new monthly voidlings, Caldwell, Alex Antkowiak and Nowhere Man. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, give to modestneeds.org, then visit deepfakestop.com, Alex Beneshek, Serious Inquiries Only, Lauren Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, A Wise Zin once said, You can't be neutral on a moving train, and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all of the thanks to our Archduke level pa patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with my co-host Callie Wright of the Queer Splaining podcast. While you are at it, check out our wonderful editor Louisa Lyons's Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can follow me on Twitter at etvpod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter how smart the parrot in your brain gets, you are the void and the void is you.